Welcome to podcast number 25 of How to Rocket Your Private Investigations Business. Today's date is April 20th, 2021, and I'm your host, John A. Hoda. Our guest this week is Bill Clutter. Bill's returning to talk about something very new and very exciting for private investigators. He's a licensed private investigator who began his career in 1985 working as a law office investigator for Springfield criminal defense attorney Michael Metnick. During that time, he was part of the defense team that helped free Rolando Cruz and Alejandro Hernandez in the famous Nicarico case, which led to the arrest of police and prosecutors in the case that became known as the DuPage 7. After that case ended, he began the post-conviction investigation that led to the exoneration of death row inmate Randy Steedle, who upon his release in 2004 began advocating for the abolition of the death penalty in New Mexico, Illinois, and Connecticut as a spokesman for witness to innocence. In 2001, Bill founded the Illinois Innocence Project. In January of 2013, Bill formed a new national organization called Investigating Innocence after joining the CAM defense team. The core of this organization is made up of private investigators committed to working to free the innocent. There are nearly 70 innocence projects throughout the United States that hire private investigators. Welcome to my new podcast, How to Rocket Your PI Business, and it features successful private investigators who offer insights into their careers and advice to those just starting out or to those who are struggling. We will learn from the best. And of course, we cannot finish a show without asking them to share their favorite detective stories and maybe a few sage marketing tips. As a working investigator, coach, and writer, I hope to bring you inspiration, information, and entertainment in the areas that interest me most. Gather around my campfire as I invite you to listen in. This episode is brought to you by my recently published books for private investigators. How to launch your private investigation business, how to market your private investigation business, and how to boost your private investigation business. It also appears a three-book set in How to Rocket Your Private Investigation Business, the complete series. All can be found at your favorite online retailers in ebook or soft cover. Did you know that I also coach private investigators how to survive and thrive in business? Visit my website at www.thepicoach.com. That is thepicoach.com to learn more. Hi, Bill. Welcome John, to the show. Thanks for having Well, it's my pleasure, sir. I wanted to have you back on again because you have something very important to talk about. But first, we always have to talk about the weather. So how's life down there in Louisville, Kentucky? Well, we've got uh, a fair amount of ice. Ice storm came through yesterday, and we're expecting uh, more more ice on Monday. Yeah, I heard about a pileup down in Texas. Don't know where exactly, but it was a 100-plus car car accident, seven fatalities, lots of injuries. Glad when spring uh, arrives. For sure. So here in Western uh, Connecticut, as we record this on February the 12th, 2021, we're still in the middle of a a very cold winter. I've had snow every other day this week, so I've got my aerobic activity in out on my driveway. Yeah, and today it never got above freezing. And with the wind chill, there were times when it felt like it was zero degrees. So yeah, old man winter decided decided to bite Southern New England pretty hard this year, so... 
I wanted to ask you about investigating innocence because it's something that's very close to both of our hearts because of the work that we both do, but you really done a lot more of it than me. I just wanted to ask you, how did this all get started? What's it about? How can people get involved? What's what's the yeah, whole story? That, I'm glad you asked that. I started investigating innocence in February of 2013, and we launched at Chicago Kent College of Law. We did a program on called side effects, homicidal, suicidal behaviors influenced by prescription medications. And we focused on a case out of Joliet, Illinois. It was actually a case where I was appointed as the fact investigator on a death penalty case. Not mitigation, but fact. Fact investigator, right. And this was, at the time, it was a a, a high-profile case. I think CNN cut in live, and they had... uh, a helicopter overhead at the crime scene, and it was it was a very gruesome crime scene. My client was Christopher Vaughn. He was a, well, at one time a private investigator based outside of Seattle. He and his wife moved back to Chicago, the the suburbs of Oswego, and he had landed a job at a Fortune 500 company as a computer forensic expert, and that was his special. He was uh, self taught. He had a pretty good career as a private investigator doing computer forensics. And the plan was that his wife would join him in the business of private investigation, accepted this job. But she continued to pursue an online class. And June 7th, 2007, police were notified my client, Christopher Vaughn, was was shot twice. He was walking on the side of a French road. There was a man that was on his way to work when he encountered Chris walking on this frontage road along the Interstate 55 south of Joliet, Illinois. His wife and, and family were both dead in the, in, the, in the family vehicle. When asked what happened, his initial statement was, I think my wife shot me. And then later, he has no memory of what happened. It's a psychological phenomenon known as dissociative amnesia when someone encounters a very traumatic event. And the example, DSM-4, and now it's been updated to 5, But the example is that if one is the sole survivor where your entire family was killed in a, and the example given is an automobile accident, because of the intense trauma, the brain blocks out the memory. And this is what happened with Chris Vaughn. As he was interviewed by police, he was finally confronted with the fact that his entire family was dead. But up to that point, when he was at the hospital, you know, was asked about his, his insurance, and he said, my wife has that, she should be here. When the crime scene investigator for the Illinois State Police came out to the scene, he had two suspects on his crime scene report. And the first suspect was Chris's wife, Kim. And one scenario was, was this a, a murder-suicide? And then the other scenario was, was Chris as, as suspect number two. This was... A case where by the time I got involved in it, you know, I was struck by the fact the wound that was fatal to Chris's wife was a classic suicide entrance wound just under the chin. She had a single bullet entry wound and all three children were shot and killed twice. They were seated in the back seat. And as we got into the case, about a year after this happened, I did, you know, discovered through an internet search of the, of the medications that Chris's wife was taking. She was prescribed 
a combination of two medications. One was Topamax and the other was nortriptyline for stress-induced migraine headaches. And the interesting thing, when Chris is being interrogated by police, he's interrogated over the course of three days for almost 20 hours of interrogation. And he's recovering from gunshot wounds, He's recovering from gunshot wounds, that's right. And he's asked, you know, did you just snap? Were you stressed out when you did that? The the truth is that his wife had been under a tremendous amount of stress to complete her online courses in criminal justice. During the course of enrolling in this online class, she started to develop stress-induced migraine headaches and was prescribed a medication called Topamax, it's normally a, an anti-seizure is, is its primary use, but the FDA allowed the manufacturer of Topamax to market it for treating stress and migraine headaches. It also has side effects too, though, right? Bill? It has side effects. So about a year after this happened, the FDA in December of, I think, December of 2008, recommended a black box warning for these medications for uh, Topamax. And of course, nortriptyline had its own risk because it's part of, they call them the SSRI, if I got that acronym right. And those have side effects as well. For instance, uh, Zoloft is in that same classification of antidepressants. And and of course, Zoloft has uh, side effects where it may induce suicidal behavior and even homicidal. But in this case, the FDA was recommending a black box warning because the clinical data showed that there was risk of suicidal thoughts and behavior related to it. The case operated as a death penalty case for four years. And one of the things, when Illinois abolished the death penalty in 2011... A very courageous act by their governor, if I remember correctly. It was. And and I was part of two of the cases that led to the abolition of the death penalty in Illinois. But the effect it had on Chris Vaughn is that once the death penalty was abolished, you no longer had access to the resources that were... A few years before, there was a number of death penalty cases where innocent people were being exonerated. The uh, legislature created a capital litigation trust fund that would hire investigators and experts and lawyers. And when that happened, all those resources went away. His entire defense team was dismissed, which included me, and including a number of experts who were prepared to testify about the side effects of these medications. And so this case is going to be featured, I think the release date is going to be in April, of a 12-part podcast on iHeartRadio. And the producer is Lauren Bright Pacheco, who produced a very popular podcast called Murder in Oregon. And that was in 2019 when that was released. My hope is that this podcast will generate interest in Chris Vaughn's case and people that listen to the podcast hopefully will become engaged in. It's interesting that there's a number of cases in throughout my career where the media has made it an important contribution. And one, the, the best example is the case of Rodney Lincoln. He would spent 36 years in prison. He was uh, convicted based on a surviving victim who witnessed her mother's murder in, in 1982 in St. Louis. And so for 36 years, Rodney Lincoln was in prison. No one was aware of his case. There was a show, Crime Watch Daily, that aired in November of 2015, where I presented evidence that a serial killer who had been executed in Texas had actually committed that crime. And in the same program, the surviving victim who testified, her testimony put Rodney Lincoln in prison. 
she was arguing that he was guilty. But afterwards, she became persuaded the real killer of her mother was Tommy Lynn Sells and, and not Rodney Lincoln. And in the next follow-up episode was her meeting with Rodney Lincoln in the prison and asking for his forgiveness. And even though we had this evidence putting this serial killer, Tommy Lynn Sells, in St. Louis when this murder happened, we had a private investigator, Michael West from Arkansas, that helped. He was paid by Crime Watch Daily to investigate Tommy Lynn Sells and provided some amazing work further corroborate the fact that Sells committed this murder and that it was litigated in the courts and the judge eventually upheld the conviction. And it finally took the governor of Missouri who commuted the sentence. And so I guess the point of the story is that getting these stories told of the wrongful convictions can have an impact and and hopefully this show will have an impact as well. And to your point, in Vaughn's case, and that, am I saying it right, Vaughn? Yes. Vaughn, in Vaughn's, Chris Vaughn's case, didn't he have appeals? Didn't he have uh, the possibility of coming back and, and offering uh, this medical evidence to show the alternative suspect? No, no. Was a- you know, the disparity of resources. I mean, the best thing that could have happened to Chris Vaughn is if he had ironically gotten the death penalty, because then he would have had post-conviction resources to investigate his innocence. Without that, in, at least in Illinois, you don't get post-conviction resources if your murder conviction is affirmed by the appellate courts. Many of these people are on their own and really do depend on external organizations like the Illinois Innocence Project, which I started 20 years ago, and other projects to provide post-conviction investigative services. The podcast airs. It it generates a lot of interest. What are you hoping for, that he could get other post-conviction relief, or how would it work for him? Yeah, well, he's, I mean, it, it's difficult. I mean, even when you have the confession of the real killer and DNA matching, these are difficult cases, and his will be a difficult case on post-conviction just because you have to go back to the same court where you were convicted. That's a big hurdle to overcome. But, you know, I think that For somebody like Christopher Vaughn, at some point, if Illinois would adopt a statewide conviction integrity unit where there's an independent review of cases, that's an avenue that could provide relief in the future, as well as executive clemency if if you have the right governor. And usually it happens when the governors are on their way out of office, as in the case of Rodney Lake. No, I understand. And from what I remember several years ago, and I'm talking prior to the uh, 2016 election, There were, I think, only five conviction integrity units throughout the United States, one being in Brooklyn, one being down in Dallas. I'm not sure where the other places were, but essentially they came about because uh, the district attorneys in those offices had enough evidence to show that certain activity seemed to be replicated over and over again, which caused convictions on cases where the clients were vigorously protesting their innocence. When they started to figure out what the common denominator was, they saw that this could have affected a lot more cases. So they had to then create a um, conviction integrity unit. Well, actually, the first one was in Dallas, Texas, and it was uh, a prosecutor who he was elected as the first African-American to be elected state's attorney or district attorney in in Texas, in uh, Dallas County. And so he was the first to establish it. But then... uh, I think Brooklyn followed, and one of the 
best examples of why we need conviction integrity units is the case of Jonathan Fleming. And that was investigated by uh, private investigators, Bob Ron and, and Kim Anklin, right. his partner. Yep. I, I had and, them on my show about that. Yeah. And it's just a fascinating case because without the conviction integrity unit, Jonathan Fleming would still probably be in prison today. I mean, it, and it's just an amazing story. The evidence that cleared him was in his pocket that was in evidence all these years. It was, I think, a telephone receipt. He was vacationing with his family in Disney World in Orlando, Florida. And the prosecutor tried to argue that, well, he could have taken several flights back to have committed this murder. And and at the time of the murder, he actually, had, I think, made a phone call or something. But it's just an amazing story. And it's just a great example of, you know, having an independent conviction integrity unit to re-examine cases. And, and a lot of these cases are very controversial. Like, you know, the Christopher Vaughn case is a very controversial case in the county where it was tried, just south of Chicago. What county was that? Uh, Joliet, Illinois. Okay. And what was the county? And what's, is that the county seat? Will, there Will, Will, yeah, Will County. Will County. Okay. But we also know from our experience, Chicago was the home for interviewing interrogation organization or two. Oh, the John Reed method. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Right. I guess we should just kind of like leave it right there. But it's it's interesting how that that and Lake County has had their share of incidences too, which is another neighboring county to Chicago. And actually there's only two conviction integrity units in Illinois. The first was in Cook County, but the other is in Lake County. And of course they had a lot of high profile cases where they got it wrong. And the cost to the county was astronomical. Yeah. When uh, the civil rights cases rendered verdicts or settlements. Oh, I was going to ask you about Vaughn. Where was his injuries? If Do you, do you remember? Yeah. His, his injury, and this is the crazy thing about this case, is that it's a case where there was testimony from about blood staining pattern analysis. And of course, you know, that's a forensic science that's been criticized heavily by the scientific community, mm -hmm. just because it's just very subjective. But yeah, he was shot twice. The first one of the injuries was through his wrist, and it actually deflected. He had a, a very heavy silver watch band, and it deflected off the watch. And I think that that otherwise that that would have been a headshot. So it's like almost a defensive wound then. Yeah, it, right. And he had a fragmentary memory on his third day of interrogation, he had a fragmentary memory where he remembered his wife pointing a gun at him and he gestured raising his hands up. And I think that that would have been a headshot if it hadn't deflected off the watch. The other shot was through his jacket. He was wearing a fleece jacket and it went through the jacket. It went right over his growing area. I mean, it, it missed hitting him in the in the man parts by just, you know, fractions of an inch, but it entered his left leg and exited out the lake and into the driver's side door. He was seated in, in the car at the time. He had pulled over. His memory is, he mem he has a memory of his wife becoming nauseous, which was, a, was which happened often when she was having migraine headaches. So she asked him to pull over. She was feeling ill. And so he went, uh, pulled off just south of Juliet onto a frontage road. And his next memory is getting out, you know, checking the tires, and there he had a uh, there was a strap on the uh, carrier on the top of the car, and he remembers tightening that. And then the next memory he has is looking down and seeing a hole in his leg. Well, there's a huge gap in his memory as to what happened, and the probable cause affidavit used that when he was indicted, but 
didn't account for this this memory loss, this dissociation. I, I, I find it hard to believe that you could reenact the way the gun would have to be pointed by a person feigning getting, uh, not feigning, shooting themselves to make it look like they were being shot at by someone else. I, I just can't understand where the gun could have been placed in both situations to allow that. And two shots? I mean... Yeah. It's that's a hard one. There have been cases where people have self-inflicted and claimed, you know, they were shot. You know, there's that famous case, uh, I think, in Boston or in Massachusetts, where a husband shot and killed his pregnant wife and then claimed it was an assailant and, and had a self-inflicted wound. I mean, those do happen, but to shoot yourself twice, I mean, that's... And it's consistent with each of the children were shot twice. But here's the thing that really... So as as we're inspecting the the vehicle it was a, a ford expedition that this happened in and it was in storage at the uh prison remember the uh the movie with joliet jake and the blues brothers and the opening scene where he's getting out of the joliet prison well that prison was being used by the state of illinois they were storing old records and and in this case they were they had the vehicle stored there but when we went and inspected the vehicle, we had a uh, crime scene expert that was assisting us. And, and he noticed that one of the bullets that penetrated the body of Cassandra, who was seated in the middle between her two siblings, the bullet that penetrated the abdomen went through the back into, the, into her seat, exited into the third row seat. So you had a trajectory. And we requested a dowel rod. And when we inserted the the dowel rod and developed the trajectory of where that shot was fired. It was from the passenger seat of the vehicle where Kim Vaughn was seated. And it was, if you turn to the left headrest, it, the, that shot was fired over the, her headrest. And it's one of those things that wasn't discovered in the course of the state police investigation, but it gave a trajectory where that shot was fired from the passenger seat. And the prosecutor's argument was that Chris Vaughn had read this because he subscribed to PI Magazine. There was uh, an article on staging a murder to look like a suicide, and that was written by Vernon Galbraith, who was a famous uh, New York Homicide detective. detective. Yeah. Right, right. And when Chris was questioned about that, he says, you know, I subscribe to PI Magazine, but I'm often too busy to read it. So I'd set it aside and, you know, they fingerprinted it and they couldn't find his fingerprints on the inside of the magazine. But the example that it's it's not like he could have read that article and staged this to look like a suicide, because the example I think that Vernon wrote about was, was staging a strangulation where, you know, an assailant strangles a woman. And then gets a rope and a noose and makes it staged to look like a hanging, oh, like okay. a, a suicide by hanging, which, you know, is just totally different. And when we finally took the deposition of, of the crime scene investigator for the Illinois State Police, he unloaded on the investigators and the, and the prosecutor. And he said that, you know, they came up with these crazy theories on how Chris Vaughn was this crime scene mastermind that could have fooled me because the wound below Kim Vaughn's chin, right under the chin, is, is classic of a self-inflicted wound. But when you analyze everything, the crime scene investigator for the Illinois State was spot on. All the evidence did point to a suicide murder. But with these cases, it's so easy to try a person by assassinating their character. And it happens in so many of these cases. And the evidence they used against Chris Vaughn is that he had gone to strip clubs and dropped a bunch of money like the night before. 
And, you know, I think he spent like a couple thousand dollars on these strippers at a strip club. And, you know, the sad thing is, you know, he went to the VIP room and the, the stripper said, well, all he wanted to do was talk. There were no lap dances. But, you know, this is also something that could also go to to Kim's state of mind. If she had discovered the receipt that morning, you know, it cuts both ways. But it's just not a motive to murder your children or your wife. And, you know, there are other things. that Chris Vaughn was a bit of an introvert. Well, I shouldn't say a bit. He was an introvert who fantasized about just hiking into the woods in the Yukon and not coming back. Mm. And they used that against him. But the character assassination is something that happens, you know, so often in these cases. One of the cases we worked on was uh, the case of David Cam. He was an Indiana state trooper who had worked 10 years as a trooper and got accused of killing his wife and two kids. And in that case, it was actually committed a career criminal who had been released from prison just weeks before the crime happened, just uh, across the river from Louisville in Indiana. But it's the most complex case I've ever been involved in, the Chris Vaughn, because there were so many issues involved in the case. You had the issue of the, of the prescription medications. You had the issue of the dissociative amnesia. Why didn't Chris defend his family if his wife was shooting him and then the children? But the truth is that, you know, when somebody's in shock, they don't react as you would expect them to react. And in this case, I think he just froze. And, and while this was all happening... He could have also been shot twice first, and, and right. then... The kids get shot. I mean, I'm I'm not trying to sound blunt about it, but uh, the husband could stop the wife from shooting them or uh, shooting herself. Well, you have different response. There's one flight fight, and there's also a freeze. You know, where you just freeze up, and I think that's what happened with Chris. Yeah. Wow. So, Bill, I see that investigating innocence is. You're trying to go na nationwide with this, right? The investigating innocence. Yeah, we're looking for people that would be interested in assuming leadership positions within the regions. We have 11 regions that we've set up. We also invite PIs to be active on the state level as a state director. And you know, we were offering a free listing on our website. We want to encourage PIs to be a part of our directory where attorneys wanting to hire a private investigator can find you. Okay. There's almost 80 innocence projects around the country. And we'd like to have PIs who are experienced in criminal defense work or, or have an interest in learning to become members of the organization and to lend me a hand in organizing and, and fundraising. Where We have a 501c3 not-for-profit status. We haven't really mobilized uh, the fundraising potential of the organization. You know, we have three major exonerations since I started this project three years ago, but it's largely been my efforts, mm -hmm. you know, in, in the case of Kurt Lovelace and, and Rodney Lincoln, that's been, you know, pro bono on my part. Yeah. But I'd like to get more PIs involved and make it a true PI organization. And it's all one word, investigatinginnocence.org. That's right. Yeah. Investigating Innocence. Bill Clutter. That's C-L-U-T-T-E-R. Bill, how can people get in touch with you? So if you just enter Investigating Innocence, our website, will pop up. I get contacted by all these producers of TV shows like 2020 wants to do one of the cases. The, the website does have a high Google rank. It does have visibility. So this is a good way for PIs to be visible. We're offering this directory listing free without charge. And, and as we go forward as an organization, 
you know, I'd like to invite PIs to help shape the direction of the organization and to make it a truly functioning PI association. You know, and I think that the work is so gratifying. I know that I look up on my wall next to my, in my office, a picture that I have of myself uh, standing between two gentlemen that one had been acquitted of murder. The other had been uh, a co-defendant in that same case that pled to a 40-year sentence. And after nine years, we were able to get him out of jail on a wrongful conviction exoneration. And that case is probably, or, you know, that, that death case, which resulted in two criminal cases, is probably my most gratifying case ever. Oh, yeah, by far. It's, I have no regrets, you know, the time that I've put into these cases because, you know, the payoff is realize an innocent person walking out of prison. Oh, yeah. And I've been there twice now. Well, more more than twice. But in that case, for the original underlying uh, criminal case for the one and then on the exoneration case for the other. And I don't think my feet touched the ground the rest of either of those days. I was just floating on a high like you couldn't believe. Because when you're talking about that kind of thing, we still have a death penalty in Connecticut. It's on again, off again. Don't quote me on it. But this was for all the marbles. A couple of young kids that were staring at like one case, 40 years. The other one was a 50, 60 year sentence, which is you know essentially a life sentence. I know what you're saying. And I think that any investigator that has a uh, inquiring mind, a good way with people, pays attention to detail, has to have interviewing skills and to know what you don't know and find people that know what you don't know to work with you. I think it's just a great opportunity. If you, you talked about a pro bono, if you tithe 10% of your time a year to uh, exoneration cases or cases where an attorney calls you up and says, look, my guy is screaming, he's innocent, he has nothing to do with it. Can you take a look at the file? Yeah, you look at the file because if you can, even if it means you know working pro bono or in, in my state, we call it low bono because it's working on state appointed cases is very low. Uh, I'm not going to pay the mortgage with that. The upshot of it is, is one, you get a lot of exposure on a high-profile case. You get a, an exposure to all kinds of investigative techniques and all kinds of uh, looking at criminal cases that are only going to serve you better in all your other cases, make you that much stronger. And you have an opportunity to have a case that you can uh, look back on with pride and say, that was uh, the best case I ever worked on. You know? Yeah, there's no substitute for that. The other thing that I'm working on is an application for a DOJ grant. You know, it's it's a long shot because it, there's going to be 13 grants awarded, but I was responsible for co-writing the grant that funded what became the Illinois Innocence Project 10 years ago. It was a grant that created a post-conviction testing program for Illinois. And so my hope is that we get some resources that we can fund, we can have uh, staff support with a case coordinator. And so there are PIs out there that know of actual innocence cases. Some may be working pro bono on a case. Let me know about your case and we'll try to submit it as part of the grant. Perfect. Bill, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate you coming back on again. When I saw that you were talking about investigating innocence.org a while ago, we, we had to get our schedules together. We finally did. I'm so happy that you came on again. Well, thank you, John. I just feel that this work is so, so important. What you do, so important. And then giving back to where this legacy can continue around the country with other innocence projects, I think is just wonderful stuff. So I really wanted to thank you for coming on today. Thanks, John, for having me. Oh, you're welcome. 
thank you for listening. I hope that I've earned your interest and your time. Please leave any comments on the website, www.thepicoach.com. Our guest next week is Sheldon Siegel. Sheldon is a New York Times, USA Today, and Amazon best-selling author of the critically acclaimed legal thriller series featuring San Francisco criminal defense attorneys Mike Daly and Rosie Fernandez. He's also an author of the thriller novel The Terrorist Next Door featuring Chicago homicide detectives David Gold and A.C. Battle. Sheldon's books have been translated into a dozen languages and sold millions of copies worldwide. A native of Chicago, Sheldon earned his undergraduate degree from the University of Illinois in Champaign in 1980 and his law degree from the University of California, Berkeley in 1983. He specializes in corporate and securities law with the San Francisco offices of the international law firm of Shepard, Mullen, Richter, and Hampton, LLP. Sheldon began writing his first book, Special Circumstances, on a laptop computer during his daily commute on the ferry from Marin County to San Francisco. A frequent speaker and sought-after teacher, Sheldon is a San Francisco Library Literary Laureate, a member of the National Board of Directors and President of the Northern Chapter of the Mystery Writers of America and an active member of the International Thriller Writers and Sisters in Crime. His work has been displayed at the Bancroft Library at the University of California in Berkeley, and he has been recognized as a distinguished alumnus of the University of Illinois and a Northern California super lawyer. Sheldon lives in Marin County with his wife, Linda, and a 17-year-old tabby cat named Betty. We also have twin sons, Alan and Stephen. He's a lifelong fan of the Chicago Bears, the White Sox, the Bulls, and the Blackhawks. His 12th Mike Daly, Rosie Fernandez story, Final Out, was released on January 26, 21, and he's currently working on his next novel. This is a fun interview. Please tune in next week. Thank you for listening. Make sure to check out our website, thepicoach.com, for more episodes, PI coaching services, books, and more. If you were either informed, inspired, or entertained by this conversation today, don't be bashful. Share this link with your friends. Better still, go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. It's the best way to grow the circle around our campfire. If you have any questions, please reach out through our website, thepicoach.com. Thanks so much, and have a great day.